hello and welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I am Amanda McCrossin here on this interesting day in Napa Valley that can't really decide what it's doing. It was torrentially downpouring earlier. Now it's sunny. I think that's just how it is in Napa in February. But with me today, I've got a different member of the Wine Access team. You've met him before when we were talking about how to taste wine like a pro, Master Sommelier, Krug Cup recipient, and former Michelin-starred sommelier, Sir Lucero. Nice to see you. Hi, Amanda. We've also got another guest with us today because we're going to be talking further about this Michelin series that we're doing around food and wine pairings. One of my favorite topics, sir. I'm sure it's one of your favorite topics as well, right? Every time I take a bite of anything fantastic, I'm always thinking about what I want to drink with it. So <laughs> it is a topic that I love to talk about. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're, we're diving in. Uh, this four episode series is all about food and wine pairings. And we're focusing on the cuisines of different chefs from around the country, all focusing on their respective cuisines, and then also talking about some of the foods that they love in their respective cities. So we couldn't think of a better person to join us today to talk about all things Mexican food. Please welcome Chef Val Cantu of Californios. Welcome, Val. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's the only two Michelin-starred Mexican restaurant in the country, right? Technically the world. I love it. Yes, that's a big boom. Global. Sir, you grew up in California, right? Yep, here in Napa. And, uh, and Chef, you grew up in, in Texas, yeah? I grew up in a small town in Texas. Okay, so you both kind of have like familiarity a little bit with Mexican food. I grew up in Philadelphia where it, uh, until a few years ago, was sort of a desert for all things Mexican food. Like I, the best that we knew was like old El Paso or whatever, like came in the grocery store, we had hard taco shells and the ground beef and like the crappy spices. And that was my entree into Mexican food until I was like deep into my 20s. But when I moved to California... I discovered a, a love for Mexican food. It's an incredible cuisine that I think still very much flies under the radar for a lot of diners. And I, I definitely want to dig into that later. It's a treat to have you here today to talk about not only Mexican food, but how to do Mexican food well in your home. And then, of course, how to pair it with wine. We're going to jump right into some of our cultural events that are going on in the wine world I mentioned there's some rain here in Napa Valley, but some of our friends over in New Zealand are dealing with a bit more. So the Cyclone Gabrielle just ripped through New Zealand's North Island, which is, of course, you know, we're in February right now, just pre-harvest. More than that, 46,000 homes left without power. 2,500 people have been left displaced and severe flooding has left people clinging to rooftops. This is bad news, obviously, for New Zealand, but also bad news for New Zealand wine as a whole, since we're kind of like right on the cusp of harvest right now. Sir, have you seen anything about, about what's going on here? Well, I know that we, like last year, we were having a pretty good shortage of also some difficult vintages within New Zealand. And then all of a sudden there was some relief and we got some more of them in for our customers and some of our, our favorites as well. And to hear that they're going to go back into having a little bit more difficulty, that's just, you know, yeah, I got some friends over there I need to check in with. Yeah. Chef, are you a fan of New Zealand wines, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot, any of the sort? Yeah, I love New Zealand wines. I don't know like that many top producers, of, but, you know, yeah, we've had some great ones in here. You know, obviously we love our Sauvignon Blancs, but sir, you guys have brought in some incredible Pinot Noirs from like the Central Otago that have kind of blown my mind and made me question everything I thought I knew about New Zealand winemaking. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be down there in 20, I want to say it was 13. It's just stunning and dramatic. You, you can tell that that wine with intensity and wine with elegance and purity can come from this place on earth. It's just, it's 
They're gorgeous wines. Not even just Central Otago. Other places make really great Pinot Noir in New Zealand as well. Yeah, I, I look forward to seeing more from you guys, although I think we're definitely going to be seeing um, kind of a rough 2020, what are we at, 2023 vintage from New Zealand. So we're definitely thinking of our friends down there and, and thoughts and prayers to everyone that's been affected by this uh, insane weather that they're having right now. Something else that's insane that's going on, and I'm sure, sir, living here in Napa Valley, you're familiar with Pierce's disease, yeah? Uh, yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Pierce's disease, Pierce's disease is uh, one of those things that can really devastate your wine crop. And it has gotten extraordinarily bad as a result of the glass even sharpshooter that has infiltrated over the last 20 or so years. But now research has maybe given us a light at the end of the tunnel. The CRISPR gene editing technology uh, is now modifying the genes of any organism and now specifically that of the glossy wing sharpshooter. And so basically what they're doing, and so did you read this article because it's fascinating? It sounds scary all of a sudden. So of course, I'm sure you've heard of like CRISPR gene editing. It's very controversial in a lot of different ways. And I think when we think about the downstream effects of what that can do our brains spin a little bit, but as it relates to the glass even sharpshooter, essentially what's happening is this critter is going around and it, it flies incredibly fast and incredibly far. And the Pierce's disease kind of sticks to the inside of the mouth of the sharpshooter and, and makes it so that it can not only take out, you know, what was once just, you know, a few vines here and there is now devastating entire lots because it can move so quickly and so far. So what they're doing is modifying some of these glass eating sharpshooters to make the inside of their mouths almost like Teflon so that that bacteria can't actually stick in their mouth and they can't continue to carry and transmit that disease further. Some of the effects that we're going to see from that is obviously less of use of uh, insecticides, which is great. But I think, it, you know, I think to your point, Sarah, it does call into question, like, what what are the downstream effects of that? Like, what happens if we start modifying things like this? And should we be looking to work with these pests instead of in a more holistic way, instead of modifying them in a lab somewhere? I don't know. I don't know. Terminator bugs doesn't sound too great. (laughs) (laughs) You never know what's going to happen, right? Maybe then they're prone to do something even worse, you know? They do uh, destroy about 40% of global crop production each year. So it's not just limited to grapes. This actually affects a lot of the crops in California and across the globe. So, you know, as a chef, I think this is a good thing too, right? This means maybe your food supply is a little less affected. So we'll see what happens. We'll keep everyone posted. As always, these articles are going to be listed in the description below. Moving right along to this past weekend's more exciting news. Sir, did you take part in any of the premiered Apple Valley festivities that just happened? I didn't. I had a, f- I really, really wanted to. And this is like really one of the first years I haven't really. Yeah. Growing up here in Napa and living here, usually it's like I get the bug and I had the bug, but I just had other other commitments that I had to do, to take care of. Yeah. It's a big yeah. week. And I, I spent most of the it week uh, going to lots of tastings. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Premier Napa Valley, it's a huge auction that happens once a year just for the trade super special bottles of wine that are crafted by our friends in the wineries that are different from what they would normally put out. So these are one-off cubes. Average price of the bottle, you want to guess what it was for, uh, and this is everything, right? Like this is like Chenin Blanc, Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, sparkling. Average price of the bottle? I'm going to throw out $88. $88. That is on the low side. Is that on the low side? Okay. Added two in front of that. $286 is the average price of the bottles that was sold. 11,000 of them were sold to different people in the trade. And in fact, 
Our friend Vanessa Conlon snagged a lot for us. So you'll be seeing That's that right. hopefully down the that. line. Yeah. She and uh, Joe grabbed that Morlay lot, which was delicious. It's Cabernet Franc coming from Oakville. That will not be on the market for quite some time. Do you see any traffic coming to the restaurant? Have you heard of this uh, PNV extravaganza, Chef? I've heard of it, but I don't know. We didn't have anybody here this year that was like specifically talking about it. We did a big event on Saturday where we celebrated sort of like our 10th year anniversary starting as a pop-up 10 years ago. So that was really our wow. focus on Saturday. Congratulations. Wow. Congratulations. 10 yeah. years in business as a restaurant. That's a huge accomplishment. Did you pop some good champagne? Uh, we had a lot of cocktails. Uh, our first pop-up was 10 years ago Saturday. And we first popped up at a cocktail bar named Big. And so Mo Hodges, who was the bartender there, was here making some really amazing cocktails for everyone. Did you do some food with it too? or Basically, the canapes were paired with cocktails. And then we moved into wine. Um, and then uh, dessert cocktail as well. Delicious. I'm very jealous. I had my fair share of cocktails after the PNB was all finished. Because after you drink like hundreds of wine during the week, you're kind of ready for something that's not wine. But next time I'll scoot down to California if the timing works out. This is the point in the show where we all, we ask you to set down your glasses and we ask you to like, give us a little review if you're loving this show. We're going to jump into the meat of it. But before we get there, go ahead, hit that thumbs up button. If you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and leave us a review. Reviews are super, super helpful both on YouTube and on the actual podcast. So if you haven't done that already, we'd really appreciate it. The other thing that we're going to do is pop our wines in just a second. So if you're not a member of the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast wine club, it's always a mouthful for me. If you're not a member of that wine club, this is the time to do that as well. We've got descriptions and links below for everything. We have so much fun sourcing the wines. Every wine that you get is going to be from a specific episode of the podcast. Today, we're drinking two of them. One of them is actually a callback to another episode. So everything is sort of like interlaced, interweaved. We have a lot of fun with it. So if you don't have your wines already, go ahead and grab them, chill them down, and we'll be right back to get into all things Mexican food. All right, everybody. Hopefully you have your wines in hand. I know I do. I've got two. I've got a red and a white. And my friend, Sir Lucero, helped us today with the red selection. Vanessa and I took care of that chocolate that's in my white wine glass right now. But Sir, since you are a member of the wine team, I'd love for you to just kind of walk us through these wines before we even start talking about Mexican food and what makes them so delicious with. Sure. So chocolate is uh, this grape variety right when I was just becoming a sommelier in 2000 and end of 2004, 2005 was introduced to me by one of my really great wine mentors, Paul Roberts over at the French Laundry. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, he's like chocolate. He's like chocolate. I'm like, what is this? I'm like, this is kind of like nothing like I've ever, like I've ever had. He's like, yeah, it's lean, crisp, sharp, minerally. And it's like, it's just like more about purity than it is complexity. And way back then, I remember everybody talking about complexity. Wine has to have complexity and complexity and complexity as I'm kind of forming all of these ideas of what a great wine is in my head. This wine comes along and it's just like, it's like super sharp and super focused and bright and kind of limey and citrusy. And it's just, it's not about all kinds of layers of flavors. It's really about being really quite pointed and sharp mm -hmm. and intense. And, and it's always been a refreshing, really just delicious wine to enjoy. You drink them young, you drink them fresh. Um, they often have like a little bit of a effervescence to them as well. So this is a chocolate. They come from Spain, specifically from like the Basque country. The producer, I'm going to butcher the name, but I'm going to try it anyway. Inacio Orizola Blanco. I'm going to stop there. We'll link it below so you can see it, but it's delicious. And we actually talked about chocolate on another episode with Gabrielle DiBello, who's the sommelier at Love Madison Park 
we use this as a wine pairing there. And I think as sounds we we love this style of wine because they are so lean and fresh and bright and refreshing. And we're talking about great foods. A lot of great foods have incredible acidity. So you need that acid to kind of like match that. And especially when we're talking about Mexican food that has so much complexity already, a lot of times you don't want a wine that has additional complexity to kind of write over top of that. You want something that's kind of like lean and pure that, you know, just kind of like fills in the gaps and kind of feels like a river kind of running through it. So we've got that wine for you and that's going to be from the wine club. And hopefully you'll, you'll fall in love with it the way that we all have uh, in the industry. If you haven't already, the second wine, that was a sir special. I asked sir what he thought red wise we should be doing for this episode. And you went Rioja. What I really, really like about Rioja with a lot of like the richer styles of Mexican food is just that there's this really rich supporting layer of savory, sappy herbs, and there's depth and there's all kinds of different just layers of those flavor profiles. And the fruit really generally tends to be rich, but it also usually finishes just a kiss sour, uh, which I think a lot of the richness in Mexican food are really kind of nicely kind of counteracts and counterbalances. Mm. In this particular club, we get to do a Gran Reserva Rioja, which is the highest pinnacle of any particular uh, producer's a profile, not just any particular producer. This is Cune, you know, Compania Vinicola Norte de España, but really kind of just shortened down to Cune for this particular wine. And it is just drinking well. These are both great. Like chocolate is something that we've had uh, on our pairing many times. And it's just like such a beautiful, fun, enjoyable wine. And then Rioja is like absolutely one of my favorites. So these are both like nice hitting it out of the park for me. Home run. Good job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Chef approved. Chef approved. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so I kind of want to kick it off to you, Chef, about what some of the most common misconceptions are about Mexican food in the United States. You know, people think of Mexican cuisine as sort of like existing as like a static cuisine that exists like, you know, they went to their Mexican restaurant growing up and it's chicheladas or tamales or, you know, if you grew up in San Francisco, super burritos or whatever. And sort of like, you know, I always think cuisine, American cuisine, French cuisine, Mexican cuisine, Japanese cuisine, they're living, they're living, changing things, you know? Yeah. I think the other big misconception is corn is a sort of like bad ingredient. I think, mm. you know, what we do is process corn in the traditional method of niche and corn is a really healthy ingredient. And if it's treated correctly, it's really good for you and has lots of B vitamins. But the key is to finding good corn and using good corn versus, you know, just cheap process corn. So you grew up in Texas. I'm sure you're familiar with Tex-Mex having lived there, but you also worked at some of the best other Mexican restaurants in the world, Pujol, notably uh, with Enrico Vera, which I had the pleasure of going to years ago. What was the birth of your like love of Mexican food? When we were four, we moved to this small town in central Texas called Brownwood. It's basically like the geographic center of Texas, very close to the geographic center. And we opened a Mexican restaurant. My dad and my uncle and my grandma and my aunts and uncles and cousins opened a Mexican restaurant and tortilla factory. In Texas, however, like flour tortillas are generally king. You know, flour is like the generally accepted tortilla, at least table tortilla. You know, we were always driving around delivering tortillas and going to different Mexican restaurants and eating at all of them. And he would tell me this one is good because of this. And this one uses good cheese. And, you know, to me as a kid, I was like, no idea what he's talking about, but that's what it is, that's where it started. <laughs> yeah, so it took me until later till I moved to, you know, work on this concept and obviously going to stage at Puyol and sort of like discovering corn myself as well, you know, discovering really heirloom varietals of corn, how to process it, how to source it. When I had such a great, memorable, beautiful meal at, at uh, California's 2021, 
I remember thinking about not just how elevated all the dishes were, but also that your food doesn't have this satiating, extracted, kind of heavy, dense feeling. Mm. We might have had like 12, 13 courses, and I didn't want the experience to end. And then we added on like two more courses at the end that we had previously because they were so great. Wow. Well, thank you for saying that. That's very kind of you. Absolutely. I think that's, you know, what we try to do is like make it delicate, make it enjoyable. And, you know, just like you said, like you never want it to end. Like that's one of our goals. It's so interesting to hear you talk about the light brightness of it. And just the fact that like all of these misconceptions are sort of completely washed away when people go to a restaurant like California's. And I think the first time I went to Mexico city, I had, it was so silly, but like, you know, I think as an American, especially growing up in Philly, I just assumed that when I went to Mexico city, all I would be eating is tacos. That's what I knew. And so I got down there and I was like, Oh no, like tacos, obviously a very big part of the culture, but most of the food that we had was like, you know, it was inspired by other places, whether that was regionally from state to state or other places of the world. And I wonder how many people come to California and have this, have a similar revelation where they do a lot of people expect that it's going to be like the Mexican restaurants that they are used to going to in their local towns, or do they not have that expectation when they walk through the door? If you ever visit our website, it's very, very minimal. There's like no pictures, there's no information. And this, our Instagram is very similar. And I set that up that way just because I don't want people to, you know, expect something or see a dish and think I'm going to have that dish or I'm going to have this. Like we're constantly changing, constantly evolving. And part of our, you know, marketing strategy is under promise over deliver. Good strategy. You know, because the website shows nothing. They don't know what to expect. (laughs) Yeah, I would say in the beginning, we got that a lot. Like whenever we were talking about fine dining or a tasting menu of Mexican cuisine, like a lot of people were sort of like, expecting dishes closer to what they grew up with or, you know, sort of what they expected it to be. But, you know, you can never reach someone's expectations of what they think something to be. We do hearken back to a lot of really traditional sauces, traditional flavors, traditional preparations. But, you know, we're using ingredients here from the Bay Area and we want it to feel like the Bay Area. That squab pastor taco with pineapple? (laughs) Is that a dish? It's just what I want right now. Yeah, we had a squab pastor, (laughs) al pastor taco with like, kind of like smoky grilled pineapple or something yeah. like that. And, yeah, oh my God. Exactly. So what do you, what do you drink with that? Well, that that's what Real I'm hot. thinking about. That's what I'm thinking <laughs> about right Real now. Hot. That's what I'm I thinking think about right now. Come on. Yeah. You guys are killing me at like one in the afternoon. I'm about to like <laughs> head to San Francisco right now. The restaurant is obviously multi-course and many courses as you've just alluded to and a lot of different pairings. Is it just wine that you guys pair with the food or do you sort of venture outside? Cause I, I think I found for me like wine can be a complicated pairing to do with some styles of Mexican dishes. Do you ever venture outside the box with that? We do a little bit. Yeah. Um, We tend not to do cocktails, although we did on Saturday. Because? I don't know. Cocktail and wine pairing just seem very separate in my opinion. Mm. And, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe we could explore it a little bit more, but we do, you know, we often do a beer in the middle, especially with the tacos, you know, something to lighten it up Mm. and just like make the experience more fun. You know, like people don't expect a beer, you know, they expect another wine and it's like, you know, a nice refreshing beer is like perfect with tacos. We've also done sakes. We've done Mm. several different sakes, which can pair with lighter courses, delicate courses, ceviches, and sometimes with tacos as well. It's interesting because I... I see dishes like banana and caviar and like as a psalm, how do you even approach that? I want to talk a little bit in a second about like what you're doing at home, but I I do want to talk about what you're doing at the restaurant because one, 
that is an insane dish that I have yet to try. But like, just looking at those two ingredients together, I'm like, what do you do? How do you approach a banana and caviar dish? That's wild. Yeah, Charlotte, my sister-in-law, you know, she started the wine program and was in charge of the wine program whenever we started that dish. And she was upset with me whenever I told her the description of that <laughs> dish. <laughs> yeah, I bet she was. But we pair it with like a really uh, lightly sweet champagne mm. and, uh, you know, caviar and champagne, classic pairing and just like, again, brightens it up like the banana. The banana is not as sweet as you think it is. You think it's going to be. It's a light green banana before we grill it. Mm. You know, we grill it, baste it in like a, a goat and sheep butter and, uh, and then put it with a caviar and like this date sauce, essentially. Mm. And so it's like, you know, it's like, it, it borders that line of savory and sweet, really. Um, yeah. So champagne, a lightly sweet champagne is like what we've got with it right now. And it's really, really delicious. That sounds delicious. I do remember this dish. Uh, I do remember looking down at it. I'm like, that's a banana, like cut in half. And like, it's caviar <laughs> on top of it. And I'm like, wow. And I sat with the dish several times after a few bites before I even looked at whatever wine was paired with it. And just remember thinking about the texture and the contrast there between something creamy and the banana was still kind of just semi-firm, but also savory. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a really, really fun experience. I remember what came to mind was a really dry Cercial, like just like an old Madeira, mm, like, you know, yeah. maybe like something like 20, 20 plus years old, but just like salty, totally. salty, but still tight and light. You know what I mean? And just, you know, with enough of that kind of slight briny saltiness to kind of work with caviar, but like, it, it's like caviar is an integration of the dish. I don't, I don't really necessarily feel it as like caviar, just caviar by itself as a dish. So it really kind of gives a little bit more play. I thought to many other things besides just thinking, oh, you have to do, you know, white burgundy or yeah. champagne or something like that. It's just, you yeah. know, it's, it's always everybody's entire life experiences kind of going into the idea of what they would eat or what they would want to drink with this. And I remember the first thing that came to mind was like, oh yeah, old Cercial Madeira would be kind of fun or. Madeira, underrated wine. We should do a whole episode of Madeira someday because it's so good. What about Mexican wine? I mean, we always talk about where grows together, goes together. I know you guys are not, you're more, you're Bay Area inspired as well. So it's not specifically just Mexican wine, but if you're Mexican food, but do you have Mexican wines on the list? Is that something that you've worked with? We do have some Mexican wines. They have like a different approach to winemaking, I think, than a lot of other winemakers. They just like take the rules away and mix all the different varietals that you wouldn't normally <laughs> see anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Interesting. They tend to have a bit of saltiness to them as well. I've been down to Baja and Ensenada and so has Charlotte and a couple of other wine team. And it's really hard to source great Mexican wines. Mm. We have a couple on the list. We've had uh, Agua de Piedras, so like a sparkling wine. Mm. And we just brought another sparkling in. The sparklings can be really delicious and they have like some of that salinity to them. They finish just like with a little salinity that's really, really nice and uh, can pair with the food. You find some that are like beachy, makes some really fun, like natural style wines. Oh yeah, I've had beachy. Those are good. Yeah, they're really delicious, really fun. Those are like a classic great, but it has been harder to find Mexican wines that are like A, imported and B, great. Yeah. So you guys have brought some into Wine Access, right? Like like maybe like one or two? Yeah, you know, Eduardo, yeah. who I absolutely love, has a little bit better grasp on those wines and even that region better than I do. I'll give him full credit for that. I have a hard time sometimes putting my finger on where the identity of the entire region is going because mm. that producer you guys just spoke about, I remember having a few of those and it's like, 
it, this feels like really warm, ripe wine, but then it's also kind of slightly carbonic made in a, mm. in a very kind of reductive way where there's not a whole lot of oxygen. So the fruit's super bright, but also super ripe at the same time. And you're like, wow, there's like, there's a little dichotomy of a lot of different uh, wines. So there is, I guess, a little bit of an identity there within those because I've tasted a lot of wines in that kind of style. Do you think it's a function of time for, for Mexican wines? Like, do they just need to, is it, you know, California 60, 70 years ago, where you know, just kind of throwing everything out there, planning everything, trying to figure it out, bringing in the right people and like just waiting for that, like magic to sort of happen? Or, you know, is that just the way that it is there? I would say that there's a lot more experimentation than that going on uh, down mm-hmm. there. I think that they're still trying to find their own identity. So some really fun like exciting things kind of come out that really are nothing like anything else. Like the, there's a lot of, I would say, European technique that I've seen implemented into very warm climate wines. And, you know, sometimes, you know, something like a Nebbiolo or Tempranillo doesn't really act anything like the motherland mm. that that grape would, you know, come from. And you're just like, okay, this is their version of Nebbiolo. This is their version of Tempranillo. But then you come across one that's made where it's picked early and then it's, you know, the the winemaking techniques are completely different. And so you're trying to find how you can put a grasp on anything. So a lot of delicious wines are coming out, but can you say that there's a movement in one direction? I'm not sure I'm qualified enough to say so. And I'll go ahead and admit it. You know what you know, you know what you know. I think it's exciting. I've been trying to keep my finger on the pulse there and I, I do need to get down to like the Baja and Sonata region to do a little bit more digging and what's going on in the wine regions there. But I get a lot of questions about it on TikTok and Instagram. People ask me all the time what I think of Mexican wines. And like to your point, Jeff, like there's just not enough representation here yet. Uh, I will be curious to see if that changes down the line. I think one of the things that we want people to do is to obviously experience some of these wines at home with great Mexican cooking. So do you have any like dishes that you love, tips that you can give for people that are at home, noting that this is a podcast that everyone listens to across the country. So many different states, not just California, where we can go to like an Amelino Central and get great tortillas. Do you have any recommendations for at home Mexican cooking? Definitely. I mean, you know, even whenever you're buying like chips in the store, like, you know, look at the ingredients, they should say corn, salt, and often it'll say lime, you know, which is Mm. the calcium hydroxide cal or slaked lime. And uh, you want to see that on your ingredient list and you want to see that it's processed in like a natural way. If you just see corn and salt, often those chips are just like, I don't know, a GMO corn or non Mm. niche niche corn that I would avoid just because it's like, you know, you can process corn and make chips out of it without going through that traditional method, but the flavor is not going to be the same. The health benefits are not going to be the same. The B vitamins are not going to be there, you know, and then just start with like seasonal ingredients, like avocados, obviously they can be in season all year round, picking some nice organic avocados. A lot of people in the U.S. use jalapenos. I would say serranos are Mm. something that should be explored, can be a little bit spicier, but like the flavor, the complexity is like, I would say higher and just like, you know, I, I love them. And then when you're looking for avocados, what, like you're at the grocery store, do you want to buy them a little unripe? Do you do like an avocado? I mean, obviously you're getting them delivered to the restaurant, but if you are out of the grocery store, like what are you looking for in your avocado? I'm always squeezing all the fruit, you know, feeling all the fruits, yeah. make sure it's nice. And uh, yeah, if you're, if you're going to go home and use them right away or, you know, yeah, feel them. If they're like, you know, they should have a little bit of give and, uh, and then you can store them in the, in your fridge as well. And they'll keep for, you know, longer in there as well. It won't oxidize so much. 
Yeah. You guys, your best day in life, I promise you. Go get a bag of socials, make your own guac, and pick up this delicious chocolate. I you'll cry. It's so good. Like <laughs> I wanna leave this podcast right now just so I can do it. <laughs> what about something like tacos? Any tips on making tacos? I mean, Lord knows, like God bless my mom, but like if I eat another hard shell taco. <laughs> It would be end game. So any recommendations on like the taco brand or, and, or if you want to experiment in Mexican cuisine, should you just avoid tacos altogether and work with like a different cookbook or, or a different style of cuisine? Yeah. I mean, I think tacos are great. I think like, you know, coming from Texas, like Tex-Mex was huge. Obviously we ate a lot of fajitas. Mm-hmm. People in Mexico like cringe at the word fajita because they're like, what does that fucking mean? Um, but... <laughs> For us, it's like an easy way to grill like chicken or beef and yeah. put some nice sauce on there and enjoy it in a tortilla and it's simple and it's delicious. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think like Tex-Mex is its own regional cuisine and should be respected as such. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a tricky thing with Mexican cuisine. Doing a lot of the sauce work, a lot of the, those like sauces are complex. I think like starting simple is the best. You know, you can make a tortilla soup, which is just like chicken stock and like you know, start with like some guajillo chilies, like bring in one dried chili to your house, steep that in some chicken stock and, and then see what that flavor is like for you and see if you like it and see like how much heat you can handle, obviously. Spice and wine are like something that have to be like really balanced. And we try to, mm-hmm. I think all of our cuisine is like warm. It's not going to kill anyone. We get people in here that ask for, you know, really hot sauces and serrano peppers on the side. And, and we're happy to accommodate because we like those things too. You know, just starting with like one dried chili, guajillo is a great one and pretty generally available. If you char some tomatoes, you can blend that in with onions and garlic and then boom, you've got a really delicious like salsa there. What are you eating at home? Are you eating a lot of Mexican food at home or are you just like completely avoiding altogether? We don't eat a lot of Mexican food at home. We do eat a lot of avocado and a lot of serrano and lime. I mean, that's like a great snack. My kids love it. Yeah, Mexican cuisine is one of those things that does take a little bit more planning. And so, like, if you are cooking it, something at home, like, you know, plan ahead. Like, if you're going to make a mole, you're going to make a complex sauce, make that the day before and yeah. and then execute the rest of the dish the next day. And then you'll save yourself, like, all the headache. And, like, sauce work is complicated in Mexican cuisine yeah. and it takes a lot of time. I have to ask what your favorite San Francisco restaurants are because we're asking all of our chefs that, you know, you live in one of the world's greatest food cities. So where do you like to eat? We're so fortunate to be here in San Francisco. There's so many great restaurants. I mean, you almost can't go wrong. SUNY Cafe, Flower and Water, Lijo Lijo. Pinu is a fine dining favorite of mine. Sons and Daughters, I worked there a long time ago and it's a great restaurant. Chef, have you been to San Juan Ho yet? I want to go there. Oh yeah, San Juan, yeah. San Juan, thanks. Corey Lee's Korean spot is Mm. really, really, really good. I'm waiting to go check it out. Corey Lee is Benno, right? He's the chef of Benno. Yeah. yeah. We walked in like late night. Like I think they're open until 10. We walked in at 9.30. There's a two-top and said, do you have a table for us? And they said, yes. And then they continued to seat after us. So we didn't feel bad. Like there was seatings all the way until 10. <laughs> That's always refreshing. Yeah, it was awesome. Sir, since you're up here in Napa, a lot of people, you know, this is the Napa Valley is the second most visited place after Disneyland in California. Wow. Where do you like to go for Mexican food in Napa? Taco trucks, restaurants, anything that you like? I go actually to El Molino Central when I'm really, really like looking yeah. for over in Sonoma, Aguas Caliente, actually. I I make the drive. It's 25 minutes. It's fantastic. Um, you know, I do like uh, La Calenda. 
Uh, I think it's fantastic over in Yonville. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, they do some really highly excellent elevated dishes. Just in terms of taco trucks, Tacos Don Carlos has the best uh, carne asada. Mm. It, it's always crispy and it's always salty and it's always, you know, it has that crisped by the fire kind of smoky flavor to it without being rubbery. You can tell it's not sitting in some kind of like steam warmer. They're actually cooking it in that truck. Yeah. A real life fire that's, you know, it's got that smokiness to it. It's really, really hot. They make their own tortillas too. So like, you know, they make this, uh, what they call vampiro, pretty much carne asada with like a handmade tortilla. They throw in the Mexican mozzarella over the top of it. They put this like really kind of loose kind of creamy avocado sauce with cilantro onions I usually omit the green salsa because there's plenty of sauce with the with the avocado, but that particular taco with the handmade tortilla used to be like two fifty. I think it's maybe like three or four bucks now, but like yeah. I'm always so glad to pay it. Where do you find it? Where is the taco truck usually parked? <laughs> it's actually right across uh, from the wine access offices, oh, right nice. there on so Sauce School. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's by the um, I know that is. It's right by the um, the where you get the fish taco, the Bahasa fish taco truck. Yes, yes. I think it's across the street. Yeah. There's so many good ones. I always tell people if you're in Yonville, like, yes, La Colinda, which is a Thomas Keller restaurant. Amazing place. Love that place. I think they actually do like frozen margaritas, which I'm a big fan of. We've got a couple of questions from the audience before we go. Chef, you mentioned mole earlier. So I think this is an appropriate one. Tips for making mole at home and what to drink with it. I mean, I would say go slow. Like you've got to toast all your spices and chilies like really slow. and cook them really slow together and then uh what to drink with it rio has great you could even go richer i would say you could move to like uh <laughs> sir is flashing his rioja across the screen <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah rioja is like always great with uh yeah. cuisine, i think i think you could even move to a cab for a mole you know if that's like Good. a light cab a fresh cab absolutely something with some age on it maybe that would pair really perfectly with it i think Mexican wine to try. We sort of touched on this a little bit earlier. Lara Coffer, who always does our, helps us with like producing these episodes. She mentioned Magoni, Casa Madera, Bruma, which I know is something that Eduardo has brought in before, Henri Lerton. We had two really delicious wines. I just want to talk about them one more time before we go. We had the Chocolina, which is the wine club wine. Delicious bottle that is going down way too fast and super low alcohol. So I don't even feel that bad about it. It's only 10.5% alcohol, just slightly spritzy and delicious. Great with guacamole, great with pretty much anything. Amanda, you want to know something funny, Amanda? It's like I didn't have a when I was dumping out the rest of my chocolate, I didn't have another glass, so my water glass became my chocolate glass. Nice. <laughs> and as as picking up my water glass, I'm like, oh, there's yeah. gonna be chocolate in this. And I'm gonna taste yes. this. And I tasted it. <laughs> so good. Right now. And it's limey, it's crisp, it's just like yeah. refreshing. It's it's you can keep diluting this wine. It's still, it's still good. exactly what it is. I mean, I'm not saying, hey, serve it with ice, you know, and sparkling no, water. It's delicious where it's at. I love it. It stays true to its kind of, I guess, its profile, its type. Um, the other one was the 2015 Cunha Rio Grand Reserva, the Rioja, which is delicious with all things mole and basically all Mexican dishes. I think we've established by the end of this podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. This is a really fun conversation. And I think this is just going to be a theme throughout the rest of the series that I'm starving now. I feel like I have not properly satiated myself to to have done this podcast. I'm going to go fix that right now via hopefully some tacos. If you all are not joined in on that Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast Wine Club, now's the time to do so because we're having so much fun doing it. And we'd love for you to join in. If you haven't reviewed this, go ahead and do that. And of course, if you haven't liked and subscribed, 
you're late. Just get on it. Don't be late anymore. We won't be mad at you, but you're late. Thank you both so much for being here. Please go check out Chef Al at Californios. If you can get a reservation, it's difficult these days. Please go check out that restaurant in San Francisco. Sir, it's always a pleasure to have you, and I'm glad you were co-hosting with me today. Thanks, Amanda. Chef, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Great chatting with you guys. This is the Wide Access Unfiltered Podcast. We're your host, Amanda McCrossan, and so with Sarah. This podcast was produced by associate producer, Laura Coffer. We'll see you all next time. Cheers. Cheers.